basically, I entitled it uh, Lighting Up the Night, um, but that's not a unified title in terms of the theme. Hopefully we'll have time to get to three different beautiful and inspiring ideas. Uh, but I did entitle the Sheer Lighting Up the Night, uh, only because, at least for me, I am, de- I am desperate for that to be the case. When I refer to the night here, obviously I mean that on multiple levels. Of course, the candles lighted at actual night time each year and every year and every night of Hanukkah are beautiful, the, the light with the black and dark backdrop. But uh, I'm not trying to be too melodramatic, but uh, I really feel that we've had six weeks of night and uh, not necessarily going to get better in the short term in terms of the war. We'll see what happens, but uh, I'm... I'm sure I'm not the only one who is desperate for Hanukkah to hopefully light up uh, the night that has been the last uh, month and a half, two months. So in that spirit, I wanted to share with you uh, three ideas, uh, each of which I think are beautiful, and there may be a little bit of a running connection between them, but they really are independent ideas. So the first question, I think, in a certain sense, is the most basic, uh, which is, what are we actually celebrating? Now, that might sound like a trick question, because as far as you're familiar with your entire life, you've known the story of Hanukkah, uh, and it is a relatively straightforward story. Or is it? I mean, the story is somewhat straightforward, although we'll see that that might be more nuanced in the next section. But in terms of what we're celebrating, that is actually not obvious uh, at all. And um, the Gemara itself, which tells us the uh, historical backdrop uh, of the Gemara, of the story excuse me, of Hanukkah, is the first source on your sheet in section one, where the Gemara does something what actually it does not do for other holidays. The Gemara itself asks, my Hanukkah. Which is Rosh explains, what is the miracle that we're commemorating? Why is there a holiday of Hanukkah? There's no Gemara that says, my Pesach, my Sukkot. There are discussions about what the purpose of the Sukkah is, what's it commemorating, but this question itself is somewhat unique. Um, and it'll be addressed a little bit, I hope, uh, in a more sophisticated way, actually, if we have time to get to the third idea. Uh, but the simple, simplest idea uh, is that Hanukkah is our one holiday that took place after the canonization of Tanakh. There was no more Tanakh anymore. Purim is the last major historical event that's included in Tanakh. Hanukkah happens afterwards. So there's no Sefer in Tanakh that's going to tell the story of what happened. So it's a whole, the whole thing we have is from Torah Shabalpat. So the Gemara says, what's, what's the purpose? Why are we celebrating Hanukkah? So the Gemara tells the familiar story that we are, uh, of course, accustomed to. How on the 25th of Kislev, and there's eight days, and why are there eight days, and what happens? We don't do Hespedim, they're happy, you can't fast, fine. second line, When the Greeks finally got into the Beis HaMikdash, they contaminated all of the oil, the wicks, again, this is really the highlights, we're leaving out a lot of details, but when the Chashmanaim the, uh, were able to defeat uh, the Greek power and liberate the Beis they found only one jug of oil, one jar of oil that they knew for certain was still tahor, it only had enough oil to light for one night, one day, but what happened miraculously, Nasabones, even though it took a week back and forth to get new oil, so that should have already uh, it should have expired uh, more than a week uh, a week before uh, they had new oil. Nevertheless, it extended another seven days, and hidlikomi menu shmoniyamim. So altogether, the one jug of oil lasted eight days instead of the only one. And as a result, says the uh, Gemara, lashana acheres the next year kavum yamim tovim 
the Chazal, the rabbis there decided, you know, this wasn't just a one-time thing, this is so incredible, this is so significant, that we should institutionalize this on the Jewish calendar as a holiday for all generations. So this is the backdrop, again, it leaves a lot of details out, uh, but this is the backdrop that we're, of course, all familiar with. Uh, it's the part of the story that most non-Jews, at least if they live in America or places like that where they're familiar with Jews, even know the story, yeah, the Jews, something oil, eight days, a miracle, and uh, you know, they eat fried potatoes. Um, so it all seems to be straightforward. What is striking is not what the Gemara does say, but what it doesn't say, more or less seems to pretty much leave out. Just a one oblique, 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 oblique reference. What's that? What are we missing in the Gemara? Any discussion of the war? The Gemara in passing, en passant, in passing says, well, when they won, then they did. It says it's a little bit of a big part of the story to leave out. In fact... The Maharal, he's not the only one, but maybe he made this question very famous in the next source. The Maharal says, I don't understand. It's not just the Gemara left it out. If I were to ask you, what's the main miracle? What, 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 what really made a difference in the life of the Jewish people? That the candles lit for eight days? And if it didn't, Vosos would, Gishleta would have been so terrible. So they would have waited a week and then they would have had a menorah. How many people at the time of Hanukkah even knew about the miracle? Now... It would have been a WhatsApp group, a chat, it would have gone viral, it would have been misreported by one of the from websites, <laughs> whatever. But we would have all known. How many, how many Kohanim were even there? How many people were even in the room? How many people even knew about it? And even if everyone knew about it, can you compare that to the, you know, the, the Rabbim Biyad Ma'atim, the rag, you know, this is like, you know, something akin to like the Independence Day War, you know, a bunch of ragtag, you know, 600,000 Jews, barely half alive, most of them coming from Holocaust, somehow defeating all the armies and preserving the state of Israel. This was something like that or bigger. And then, stop, stop, stop. <laughs> then, then, then all of a sudden, okay, there's a nice candle, you know, a cherry on top. We had a miracle. Like this, the Maharal asks the question in the next source. He doesn't understand something. This is it? This is the whole thing? He says, I understand, second line. What, the real thing we're thankful for is that we won. <coughs> it's an incredible military victory. And it's not just the military, although that is a factor for sure, but also the fact that we, were, we all of a sudden have religious freedom again. We didn't have the persecutions of the Greeks. And he points out in the parentheses, Veriah, I'll prove it to you. Kiba al hanisim lois kiru hanishal neiros klal. You ever notice that? I won't sing it for you. Okay, al hanisim. We don't even say anything about the candles. Rabbi biad matim. All this. It was an incredible victory. Tamei biad dehorim. All this stuff. It was great. And of course, that's what we're thankful for. So why, when the Gemara asks the question, what are we celebrating? Does it completely leave out the main story and goes right for dessert? Yeah, but it says Alanisim, which... That's not in the Gemara. The Gemara asked... It's true, you're right. Alanisim probably is from that period of history. But the question is, why would the Gemara not focus on that? The Gemara is the authoritative source. So I want to share with you two ideas. One is from the Maral himself. This is very, very significant. So if you take a look uh, at the underlying part of the second source, Says the Maharal, 
This is for you. Says the Maharal, the main miracle of the two, as we would have thought, if we think about it, now that we've thought about it, Maharal endorses it, the main miracle is the war. If you go through Hanukkah thinking we're just celebrating the candle, you've completely missed the point of Hanukkah. We are celebrating a military victory that restored Jewish sovereignty and gave religious freedom to Jewish people in Israel and throughout that region. That is the main miracle, says the Maharal. That's Iker Mashakovim That's why they made a holiday. Just for the candle? Okay, there were miracles. You think that was the only miracle that happened in the time of the Basin Mikdash? A lot of miracles. There were daily miracles. We're going to make a holiday for all of them. The holiday is to celebrate the military victory. Mervos. What was the difference? What, what happened? What's the confusion? Says the Maharal, if you have a military victory, this was not like the Pesach story. There were no ocean seas that split. There was no hail and fire raining down on them. There were no rivers turning to blood. How is it that this ragtag group of Kohanim, maybe Yeshiva Bahram, were able to defeat the Greek Empire just because they were a little faster, they had, you know, in between Gemara Seder, they had learned a few moves. So you'll tell me they will go to the war college and they'll explain to you there's something called asymmetrical warfare. Look, you see in Vietnam, sometimes a strong army doesn't always win. Arshkite. Of course, the only way it could have happened was Hashem. It's impossible. It's irrational. We'll be like trying to give a military explanation for the Six-Day War. There is no such thing. It was a miracle. The miracle was executed through the hands of the soldiers. But it was a miracle. There's no logical or rational explanation. But we all understand that even if we believe that, even if we know with every fiber of our being, if your eyes don't see the miracle, it is easy to miss it. When you see the sea split, I never have, but I'm assuming I wouldn't get confused. I would know this is a miracle. If all of a sudden I saw the river turn to blood, I would know this is not normal. I understand that. But just the fact that a few soldiers, a few Shiva guys, a few Kohanim could defeat the Greeks, I couldn't say, hmm, maybe Hashem did that for us. Or I could come up with all sorts of explanations on CNN as to how this is happening and why, and I could bring in a military analyst. So it says the Maharal, of course it was a miracle, and of course that's why we're celebrating. We want to thank Hashem for it. But they would have missed it. And certainly over the generations, we certainly would have forgotten about it. We would have said, we would have started giving stories about the Maccabees, and how strong they were, and how militarily you know, elusive they were, and how flexible they were, and how smart they were. It says something fascinating. Hashem, to make sure we'd realize that the whole military victory came from Hashem, there's one more chapter to the story. The P.S., the cherry on top, which obviously, one jug of oil lasting for a, a week, Eight days, when it only has enough oil for one day, this is obviously a miracle. That everyone understood was a miracle. But it wasn't done for its own sake, says the Maral. If your whole experience of Hanukkah, your whole feeling of, thank you Hashem, and what am I commemorating, that Hashem made a miracle. If that's all you think Hanukkah is about, you've missed the entire point, says the Maral. The purpose of the jug of oil and the miracle in the base of Migdash wasn't for its own sake. It's that we should appreciate not what happened in the base of Migdash, and not the supernatural part. What happened in the base of Mekdash in the supernatural part was to give us appreciation for everything that was happening on the battlefield. That that was miraculous. That that was Yad Hashem. That that's what we have to thank Hashem for every year. So that doesn't answer the question why the Gemara doesn't mention it. We're talking about the Gemara 
lead up to that. Okay, that, that, you could ask that question about a thousand Gemaras, why it's written in somewhat cryptic ways. But that, I don't have an answer for that. He doesn't suggest an answer. But if he's asking, the Gemara is under asking, what is the reason they celebrated the holiday? And that is the answer. We created a holiday because of the military victory. Excuse me, but excuse me, but why is it that we, ha- why do people know that there's a holiday? The answer is because of the Nes Pach Shaman. But really, it's not about the Nes Pach Shaman, says the Maral, it's really about the military victory. Now, this, of course, I think is just profound. And for many people, this is actually not just profound, it's revolutionary if you never thought about it. So you need to internalize this. Uh, the fact that this also has very contemporary relevance and resonance is a separate point. Uh, and also shouldn't be uh, uh, underappreciated this year. But even without the war this year, and hopefully by next Hanukkah there will be no more war. But the point is, we have to realize what we're commemorating year in and year out. Now I want to just complement this maral with another piece from Rav Meir Simcha of Dvinsk, the Meshachachma. I'm not saying, I don't think they're necessarily arguing. They're definitely giving two, not only are they giving two different answers, the answers go in slightly different directions, for sure. But if I had more time, and I don't think there's a need to belabor it, I, I, could, I could explain why I don't think they're really arguing, or not, it's not necessarily arguing. But they are definitely giving different focuses, and definitely something that we should consider as well, in the Meshachachma's perspective, not only because of the historical insight, but also because of its relevance to what we're going through now. The Maral, excuse me, the Meshachachma, this is the third source in, the, in this first section, he fits Hanukkah into a wider thesis of his. He has a worldview, which he expresses in this particular piece uh, at great length, and that is very simple. Jewish people, in his opinion, he takes a very strong view on this. It's actually a much more complicated question, and I have a whole hour-long plus year on this question, the, the meta question. Do Jews, should we celebrate, do we celebrate the death of our enemies? No, we're not supposed to. It's much more complicated than that. I, have a, I just said I have an hour shear. I have an hour shear. But, but in that hour shear, I mentioned this Meshachachma. And the Meshachachma is a strong advocate, like you, that we don't celebrate the death of our enemies. What do we celebrate? The salvation that we receive, which unfortunately sometimes has to happen through their death. But the focus isn't supposed to be their, their death. We're not happy for their death. We're happy that we are fill-in-the-blank, depending on what story you're talking about. Free from Paro, safe from Haman, the Nazis, whoever. Why am I saying? Uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not talking about thankful. I'm not talking about, he's not saying that you don't kill them. You may have to kill them. He's saying, but what are we celebrating? We're not celebrating their death. This is his thesis, and again, it has a lot of other sources, which some of you are even familiar with. But as I repeat, it's much more complicated than that. But in that thesis... Which you see here on the second line, for those who have it inside. Lokein Yisrael, we're not like the other Jews, uh, to the other nations, excuse me, who celebrate the death of their enemies. We don't make a holiday over the death of our enemies. What's his proof? He had two proofs. Well, yeah, his third proof, he gets back to Pesach's story, which I won't even mention. But the two proofs that are more relevant to us, Purim. When is the holiday of Purim? What's the date of Purim? It's not the anniversary of the military victory. It's the next day. That's a very subtle, minor difference. But according to Mary Simcha, it's a huge difference. If we were celebrating the death of Haman and his people, and the people who were trying to fight, try to kill us, we would have Dafka celebrated the day we killed them. That was the 13th of Adar. We rested on the next day when we were finally able to then, wow, we can live without the sword of Damocles hanging over our head. There's no more extermination, or as long as we're okay. So now it's good for us, not just bad for them that they're dead. That was yesterday. 
We celebrate today because it's good for us. That's one of his proofs. But his other proof, which of course is relevant to us, is the Hanukkah one. If you take a look, uh, halfway down, I even a little, 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 little double underline there, Ulakach al neis Hanukkah, when it comes to the holiday of Hanukkah, Ein hayom more al hadlakas shem and zayis v'achinuch beis Hashem v'tarato, v'hashkachas elokim al amo beis Yisrael, b'zman shlohaya navi v'choza bi Yisrael, etc., etc. In other words, says the Mayor Simcha, I'll, I'll give you a proof. Our question that we started with from the Maral, Maral lived before Rameir Simcha. Why is the Gemara's presentation of the holiday completely focused on the miracle of the candles and the menorah? Why is our experience for centuries, how do we celebrate Hanukkah? By commemorating that miracle. There's no mitzvah that we do. We don't dress up like soldiers or do something, right? We're not, the only mitzvah that we do, the only symbolic action that we do is about the candles. And that's what the Gemara said, my Hanukkah, about the candles. Says Rameir Simcha, and again, in many ways, almost the opposite of the Maharal, because it's a way of de-emphasizing the military victory. Yes, we won. Yes, we killed who knows how many Greeks. I have no idea how many they killed. That's necessary, but that's not what's celebrated. What's celebrated is it allowed us to liberate the base of Megdash. It allowed us to live a full religious life, to liberate the base of Megdash, to live... Uh, in the religious freedom uh, and do the things that hopefully that we're supposed to do that we always wanted to do the Greeks were persecuting us so again I don't think that you have to build a huge philosophical argument out of the two although you could but at minimum at minimum there's definitely a machlokes of what should be the emphasis in your experience in your commemoration on Hanukkah the moral is clear the emphasis of the commemoration and the celebration is hakaras hatov gratitude for the military victory According to the Mayor Simcha, of course we're gra- we were grateful for it, but that shouldn't be the emphasis. The emphasis is the liberation of the base of Mikdash, the freedom for religion, the fact we could practice without being persecuted, which is symbolized by the miracle and the candle. But it's really about the Jewish life that was enabled to reflourish and rejuvenate in its full capacity because of the war. But that, so to speak, was, if you will, these are my words, obviously not his, almost as if he's saying it's a necessary evil. But it's not really the goal, and that's not what should be emphasized over the generations. So, again, you could build some very, very, uh, for lack of a better term, liberal, almost anti-military kind of orientation into the Mayor Simcha. I don't necessarily think that would be the right way to read him. Uh, but th- I don't want to get bogged down in that. Either way, I think there's two different points, and you have, not a surprise, different great Mepharshim arguing about what should be the emphasis. Again, for me at least, as I think about the upcoming Hanukkah, so I think that it's Efshar Lakaim Shneim, for sure, in terms of our own Hakar Satov for what's happening over the last few weeks. That is to say, we can be incredibly grateful and happy that the army has been so successful and Halavadish should continue to be so successful. And uh, I have to tell you on a personal level, again, it hasn't been for four or five days already. But before that, each time you know Israel would publish, you know either the numbers of people were killed by the you know the by Tzahal, or there was particular commanders, and they would say you know Hisul, and they would show this guy with the X. I was very happy. I'm not embarrassed to say I got visceral emotional pleasure when I heard that these people were killed, and the Maral very much uh, endorses, I would think, uh, that type of approach. Um, and we should be happy and grateful that uh, we live in a generation where we don't need a ragtag bunch of Kohanim, but we actually have a very, very mighty army with, with Hashem's help. And of course, we need to always remember that it's not the Iron Dome, and it's not the Stingers, and it's not this huge Negev gun that weighs, I don't know, 100 pounds that my son has to carry around. 
That's not what's doing it. Of course it's Hashem. Who's guiding the bullets? Who's guiding the Iron Dome? So we can't, just like the Mara was worried that they would forget that in Hanukkah, we have to make sure we don't forget that. But that's the movie we shouldn't be grateful for the military. We should be grateful for the soldiers. Of course we should be. And the Meshachachmah's point is also equally true, which is, of course, what we're really grateful for, we don't really care. If they would all just leave and move off to Iran, and we would have to, we could live without them, we'd also be okay. Meaning, what we really care about is not their death. What we really care about is that we should be able to live in peace. We're not, we're not bloodlust. That's them, not us. We don't have the culture of death or killing. That's them, not us. So I think there, you, I don't think it has to be a contradiction. But it is interesting to see that the Meshachach and Naral give different you know, focuses. They each have their different emphasis in Hanukkah. And again, I think it's, it's food for thought in terms of how we experience Hanukkah uh, this coming year, all of us, because obviously this is not a typical Hanukkah, to say the least. Okay, that's point number one. Point number two. Let's try to understand... Um, what characterized the particular persecution and evil intentions of the Greeks? We have had many enemies over the centuries, uh, and some of them have redundant themes. You know, it would certainly seem that you would put Hamas with like Hamon and Amalek, they just want to kill Jews. Um, but that wasn't true about every enemy we've had over the centuries. There have been different reasons why people have persecuted us. And it would be silly and lazy to assume that they're all the same. So, I don't even just mean for like historical or like PR purposes. I mean like for Avodah Hashem purposes. Right? What, what, what was the story? What happened in fill-in-the-blank part of history? And therefore, what are we grateful for that Hashem helped us with? What were the Jew- How can we understand the suffering the Jews had in generation X or Y? And what are we grateful for? So each, each holiday has to be understood and appreciated uniquely. And I want to share with you in this second section here a, a beautiful idea uh, I think really almost breathtaking. I, I love it so much, which is a sh- part of a short essay. Uh, it is a short essay uh, in one of Rav Usher Weiss's Svarim where he explains uh, about the holidays. And I thought he really uh, did a beautiful job with this one. So he starts off his piece uh, by quoting a very famous medrash right in the beginning of Bereshis, right in the beginning of the Chumash, when the Torah describes the world before creation. How the world was tohu, vavohu, we don't even know what these things mean. We can't understand what the world was like before creation. But the Torah just uses words like chaos and empty and uh, I don't even know how to, you know, and it was choshech al to home. Again, what does that mean, darkness, before there was a world? But these are the words that the Torah uses. Right? This is the opening psukim of the Torah, we all know. And then, you know, God created the world and it was all good. Well, not always, but hopefully. So the Medrash, very famously in this passage here, uses the different references in that pasuk about the darkness and the chaos of the universe, before there was a universe, before there was a world, as a metaphor and as a hint, an allusion to what in the rabbinic tradition is the four great enemies of the Jewish people or the four great guliot, the four great epochs in which we will be forced into gullus. Okay, So the, the Medrash says, There was chaos. This refers to the first uh, exile that we had after the base of Mekdash, Golis Bovel. Okay, then it was to Vavohu. What's Vohu? Again, however you translate the word, but that's another chaotic thing. That was referring to Madai, which really refers eventually to what the Purim story was. Choshech, Ze Golis Yavon. This refers to the Greeks, the Hanukkah story. Shechshicha Einehem Shal Yisrael. They darkened or blackened the eyes of the Jewish people with their terrible xeros, shahisa omeris lahem, and they even said to the Jewish people, al keren hashorsh enlem chilik Yisrael. Right on the horn of an ox, you have no more portion in the God of Israel. Right? 
obviously we're going to have to unpack what that sentence means because pretty much every phrase there is weird. And then lastly, which of course is referring to the Romans, but since the Medrash was written in the time of the Romans, it couldn't say the name Romans explicitly, so it just refers to the evil ones, which is really a reference to Rome and the second Chorban, uh, etc. Okay, so this is the Medrash, and again, what this exactly means in the broader sense is not our topic, but this is a well-known rabbinic tradition that there are four goloses, four big enemies of the Jewish people, and you know we're pretty much still in the very, very long uh, period of the Roman exile because that's who destroyed the second base of Mikdash, and we're still waiting for the third. So Rav Asher Weiss here in the bottom of the page, um, in this essay, he begins by asking a very, or make, I would say you could ask it as a question or just make a simple observation. The Gemara, I mean, the Medrash, excuse me, refers to what happened in the Hanukkah story as Golos. Is that, is, that, is that true? Is that correct? How do we usually translate the word Golos? Right, so when, where, if the Jewish people are in Golos or sent into Golos, where does that take place? Like, by definition, right? Dictionary definition outside of Israel, right? So, Bovel, we were, Golos Bovel means. We were Israel, but the, but the Babylonians not only destroyed the base of Mikdash, they sent us into exile, Al-Naharos Babel. Right? They sent us to Babylonia, they, circ- they, they, they dispersed us, and they left a few hidden around. But basically, the, right? of course, that's what happened in the time of Rome. Obviously, the whole Purim story happened outside of Israel. But where did the Hanukkah story take place? Right here. You go to the mall in, in, in Modian, you'll feel like you're part of it. You know, Maccabim Reut, you'll feel... What is exactly where the story took place? I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a madrich tilim or an archaeologist, but it's somewhere around there. It's not that far from here. It was in Israel, and then we won. So it was bad. I'm not. I'm not. No, no one's minimizing how bad it was before we we were able to liberate ourselves. But the whole story took place in Israel. Why is that a gullus? Right? You know, there are, there are people like this, right? You know, everything looks. You know, because all they have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And there's certain people that they have their go-to theory on life, and they pigeonhole everything that happens into that one theory. And there are plenty of people like this of all persuasions. But that can't. So Chazal are so obsessed with the idea of Golos that they even thought that Hanukkah story was Golos. It's not Golos. We're in Israel. Just come up with a different word. Why, what does that have to do with the other three things? It's not the same. Why include it? Why categorize it? That's an interesting observation. It's a good question. It's such a famous medrash. It's a famous idea, but it's such obviously incorrect. So it says Rav Asher Weiss so beautifully, this is, we'll read a little bit of it inside, on the bottom of the page here you have here. So obviously what Chazal, were, they understood all this. They were obviously teaching us something very deep. Very beautifully written. Teaching us a profound lesson. There can be a Golos even in Eretz Yisrael. Golos is an existential state. It's not a physical one. It's true that if the Jewish people are forcibly removed from the land of Israel, we are geographically removed. And Mimela, of course, comes with that, the spiritual exile, the existential exile. Because a Jew has one home. And that's the land of Israel. So if Jew is not able to live, they were forced out, yes, they were sent into Golos. But it's not the physical point, says Varshawas. It's really the spiritual existential point. And therefore, it's conceivable that even in Israel, there can be Golos. 
that was a story of Hanukkah. Not that we were, not that the house or the home was destroyed, but there was a destruction within the home. Not that we were thrown out of our house, but even in the house there was a korban. After all, as the Gemara itself says, we, we read it earlier, Hayavanim timu they contaminated all of the oil. Let me ask you a question, says Rav Asher Weiss. If they wanted to make sure, you know, to destroy, right? Again, I'm not, they weren't Hamas, and that's the whole point, where they were different. Their goal wasn't to kill us. But just like we see, not only Hamas, we've seen this for the last 75 years, anytime the Arabs get any area, any free reign, any place that used to be where Jews lived, they always do the same thing. They just destroy everything. When we gave them back Shechem to the Dekever Yosef, a million examples, unfortunately. Right? So why didn't the Greeks do that? They had the base of Middash, they clearly hated us. They wanted to ruin it for us. Haraya, they, they contaminated everything. So it says verse, why did they destroy it all? Why did they burn it all? Why did they burn the base of Middash? If, if you're ready to be an enemy of the Jewish people, you already want to conquer them. You have your you know, Greek worldview and philosophy of the, the gymnasium and the Olympics and all the things that they wanted to do to the Jewish people. So why didn't they just destroy the base of Megdash? What do you think? Wouldn't Haman have destroyed the base of Megdash if he could have? That kind of personality? That kind of enemy? Wouldn't Hamas, obviously? So why didn't they? Why did they keep it around? Even, but perhaps... But and metamit and make it impure. So Rav Asher says this is exactly the point. Ubekach Israel. It's as if they were saying to them, and this is the, that psychological warfare. But we need to know what is the warfare. What, what were they trying to communicate to the Jewish people? How were they trying to torture us? What game were they playing with us? They are in essence telling the Jewish people, "You want to light the candles? We have no problem. Keep a base in Mikdash. Keep even lighting candles. Hidliku ach but we're going to ruin it for you. What's worse than not being able to pick your mitzvah? To, do, to have to go through the motions of keeping the mitzvahs in a way that has no meaning. We don't care whether you light candles or not. We don't care whether you still have a temple or not. You can call it whatever you want. We're not, we're not about destroying. We want to take the meaning out of it. The rest of your life, we're not, we're not going to starve you. But the rest of your life, you're going to eat food with no taste. There's no more Tom in life. You want Tom, you have to come to our, our way. You want to keep your way, okay. But we're taking away all the meaning from it. You can have your oil, you can have your base of Megdash. But it'll have, it'll, we're going to ruin it for you. It'll all be Tommy. Hayavon and Ratzul Tommy es tochan Megdash, shel base Yisrael, v'gam lezos galus yikra. And that is also a form of galus. Because gullus means we can't live Jewishly meaningful lives. Gullus means we can't be doing what and where we need to be, where we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to be doing. Yes, one dramatic way of that happening is being forcibly removed from the land of Israel. It says Rosh Hashanah so profoundly that can even happen in Israel. Living here but being completely robbed of any Jewish meaningful life would also be a form of gullus. And that's why they had no problem keeping all even the base of Mikdash as long as they had ruined the message of it. And as the Pasuk says in the Navi Yechezkel, Ba'o pritzim v'chileluha. They didn't destroy the base of Megdash. Chileluha. They made it whole. It wasn't Kodesh, but they took away all the meaning. They were mechalalit. Right? Someone doesn't keep Shabbos, we call them a mechalal Shabbos. So Shabbos existed, 
But you drove your car, you did whatever you did, you were Mechalal Shabbos. So you can have your base of Middash, but it's a Chilol base of Middash. You want to light your oil? You want to play games? It's like little girls, you know, little kids having a tea party, they're pretending, they all dress up like grown-ups, the Shabbos Abba, the Shabbos Ima, that kind of stuff. You want to play, you want to pretend, you can do whatever you want. That's your habit, that's your culture, you've always done this and this on that day, you don't keep on doing it. But it'll be meaningless. Chilaluha, they took away all the meaning from it. And this is exactly was why they didn't destroy the oil, because they just were metamit. This weird line that the Medrash has, very, very famous enigmatic line, that the Greeks told the Jewish people, right on the horn of the shore, the ox, we have no chilek in the Torah. So there's a lot of Torahs and interpretations about this. Rav Usher Weiss is medayik in one thing. The Medrash didn't say right on the horn of a shore, of an ox. It was with a hey idea. Kitva al-karen, hashor, the ox. Which ox? What's, what are we talking about here? So his interpretation is, symbolically refers to, not a particular ox, but the ox of Karbonos. In the world of Karbonos, the shore, the ox, is the primary animal. So he, the way he understands it, in light of this overall theme and thesis, is what the Greeks were telling the Jewish people, just like by not destroying the oil, but just being metam it, they were saying, Kisvo al Karanashor, you still want to have your oxes, you still want to have your carbon, you still want to have your sacrificial service, the base of Mikdash and the temple and all the. Again, it's very hard to all of us in 2023 to relate to that. I understand that. I'm no different than you. But we have to understand that for a significant part of Jewish history and in the vision of the Torah, a huge part of the Jewish life was the base of Mikdash and carbonos, dead animals, spraying blood. Yeah, not the pretty stuff, but that was. Very much part of Judaism, even though it's hard for us to relate to. So the, the Yavanim, the Greeks were saying, you can still have your base of Megdash. You can still have your oil. You can still have your menorah. Just like the menorah would be with tummy oil. So you just want to keep on bringing karbonos? Gegezunt. Keep on bringing karbonos. But on your way to the base of Megdash, I don't know if it's literal or metaphorical, but let's even say it's literal. You're going to write on that shore, we have no more connection to Judaism. In other words, we're going to rob the meaning of it. Like all sorts of people in the pagan world bring out animal, bring out animal sacrifices. But there's nothing uniquely Jewish anymore about this. There's nothing uniquely spiritual. We're gonna, you, you can do whatever you want to do, but it's, it's like eating without taste. We're going to rob you of that experience. Turn over the page for those who have it. And that's, he says, was the same idea. You want to keep on bringing karbonos? Skegazunt! But you'll do it without any meaning. And this is now why the Medrash says, when I talked about the four Galiot, so wait, the first question was, why is Hanukkah a Galus if it's all in Israel? So we've already explained. Why did they contaminate the oil instead of burning it or destroying it? As we've explained. And another point, why did they make this right, the ox, right on the horn of the ox, he just explained. But he adds a fourth thing. Which is the, the Medrash had said, in the time of Hanukkah, the Greeks didn't just have gzeros on us. Which again, we, though, there are different sources that talk about where the gzeros, you couldn't keep Dubris Mila, uh, any woman before she got married, the night before her wedding, had to be with the Greek general, uh, maybe Rosh Chodesh, different theories as to what were the particular gzeros, the religious persecution and legislation against the Jewish people. But the Medrash alludes to that. But the Medrash refers to very, uses that in very colorful poetic language. As we read before, let me remind you. 
they darkened or they blackened their eyes. It's like unnecessarily poetic. You know, I don't know if any of you uh, were are writers or you remember your English composition or literature class, right? But there are always certain people. Maybe uh, I hope I'm not like this anymore, but I probably wasn't like when I was younger, right? Who you know they think is be more impressive when they're writing. They try to use a lot of big words and multiple synonyms to say the same thing. If you were lucky at any point in your life and you had a really good professor, really good teacher, you got back your paper with a lot of red, right? You don't need all the you don't need to be unnecessary. If it makes the point, then make the point. But you don't need to do it just to you know. It's like you know, as you know, when we were when we were in elementary school or high school, at least when I was growing up, a lot of times the assignment you know was a certain you know minimum three hundred words. And this is before there was Microsoft Word in laptops. I remember as a kid counting. Okay, how can I say the same thing a seventh time just to get to the word limit? Right, whatever. Right, but okay, when you get older and you want to be, you know, if you think about anyone who's, whether it's Hebrew or English, Torah or non, who are the good writers? So sometimes they use rhetorical flourish. Sometimes they use poetic language when it serves a purpose. But not unnecessarily. So they're not just trying to impress the editors that the New Yorker. Like, why, what's all the fancy language? Why does the measure say, Hichshichan? Just say they made terrible xeris from the Jewish people. That's not enough. Hichshichan, they blackened their eyes. So it says Rav Hashawai so beautifully. That's the subtle point. Choshech, and again, that's, no. Technically, why did the Medrash use the word? Because it's a play on the Pasuk in the beginning of Bereshus. Yes, that before God created the world, everything was dark. Everything was black. But why use that word? If you're, You could have picked a different you use that word for Purim. Use that word for Mitzrayim. Why was that word specifically connected to Yavon? Why is that word connected to the Hanukkah story? It says Rosh Hashanah exactly the point. Because they were the whole idea was not to, so to speak, gouge their eyes out or take away Yiddishkeit. But to blacken it. You can still have it. But I'm taking away the Tom. I'm taking away the beauty. It'll just be a meaningless exercise. It is, I, I don't know who, where, where this metaphor, this idea originally comes from, but I've seen it written in books. I've even once saw it, I think, like in a New Yorker cartoon or something like that, where you, know, you have this picture, or, this, or you, can, you have the mental image of somebody who's like in jail, and he spends years and years and years, you know, he, he's digging, you know, something, you know, or, on the, or building a wall, I think is the, is the way the image goes, right? And he thinks he's doing something of utility, right? He's making license plates, right? Or imagine even the, the, the American prison idea, you make license plates. It's hard enough. I have no interest in that life myself. But what could you put, help you get to sleep each night? Okay, these people are all around America driving a car that I made the license plate. Or I'm doing all this backbreaking labor, but I'm building something that somebody's going to use. Right? And the, the, this image in this famous cartoon, and again, people have written about this, is no, he's, he, on the one side of the wall, he's doing all this work, but they're throwing the license, they're throwing the license, they're throwing the license plates in the garbage. Or they're building a wall, and there's nothing on the other side. There's no purpose. That was Yavon. You can do all the things you want. You can go through all the motions for no point. That's a form of torture. That's a form of gullus. You can do all the things you want. You can even do it in Israel. But it'll have no meaning. That's really, really powerful. He explains, by the way, that's why we needed to. Re- we couldn't rely even on the tummy oil. We've discussed this in years past. I think two, last year or two years ago, I gave a shir in the Hanukkah shir. We mentioned the famous question that, technically speaking, I made this point to you, and uh, some of our regular attendees know that every now and then when I make this po- these kind of points, I, I I get I don't know why. Maybe it's a perverse pleasure, but sometimes I get a little pleasure of pointing out all the mistakes our kindergarten teachers made. So I said, our whole lives we were brought up that you couldn't light from the contaminated oil, therefore they needed to wait, right? We were all, we had the same kindergarten teacher. My name is Mrs. Sharfstein, you had a different one, but she's really the same person, just with a different name. We all had the same kindergarten teacher, and they all taught us the same thing, that they couldn't light the oil because it was tummy, 
So therefore they had to wait a week and a miracle it lasted. But it's not true. Don't tell the teachers. <laughs> don't ruin it for the little kids, maybe. When they get like to eight or nine, maybe, or ten, you can tell them, bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah. You, in a situation like what was going on in the Hanukkah story, you would have been allowed to use tummy oil. It wasn't ideal, but you could have. Again, I won't get into all the halachic intricacies of why, but you could have. And for many ask, why did they have to rely on a miracle and just put in the one jug and say, let's hope for the best. Meanwhile, they're waiting to go to Takoa and come back. Wait, took a week to get the new oil. Why didn't they just light tummy oil for a week until they got the new oil? Not the story they teach you in kindergarten, I know. The kindergarten version is a little more exciting. So there's different answers to that question. But that's, you have to, if you know the facts, if you know the halacha, that's a good question. So Rav Asher Weiss's answer fits in exactly beautifully with everything we're seeing until now. This explains it. Yes! Yes, they could have lit with the impure oil. Oh, that's no point. If the whole, we just said, why didn't, they, why didn't the Greeks destroy the oil? Because they didn't care if you lit. We just want you to light with tummy oil. So now you're going to celebrate a victory over the Greeks by lighting with tummy oil. The whole purpose of the military victory. Why did we go on a, why did we have a rebellion? Why did we just do like a lot of Gaulish Jews want to do, just keep our heads down? Shtelehate, they won't bother us maybe. Okay, they're bothering us. It could be worse. Still, don't say anything. Maybe they're going to hurt us more. They didn't. They had Gava Yehudit. They decided to fight back. How come? After all, if it's technically allowed to light the tummy oil, so what did the Greeks even do that was so bad? The answer is, of course, if you're looking at it myopically, or, at, or, or everything is basically good. Now, you just had a technical question. You know, can I light with tummy oil in this unique circumstances? Then the answer would have been yes. But a life of tummy oil? If one of you called me and said, by accident, I spilled a little milk into the cholent or the chicken soup, and we discussed the details, and I told you it was okay. Or you, 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 you put it in the wrong dishwasher, or whatever it would be. You did the wrong thing. Right? So sometimes I tell you you have to kosher it, or you have to throw out the food. That sometimes is the answer. And sometimes the rabbi tells you you can eat it anyway, it's okay. Would a person go through the whole life putting a little bit of milk on the cholent because the rabbi's going to say it's okay? Is that a Jewish life? That's what the Greeks wanted. So says Rabbi Shorez, after all of that, that, that's what they fought against. Where the whole purpose of the rebellion was so we shouldn't have to use tummy oil. Even if technically maybe it would be okay. So now to celebrate it, we're going to use more tummy oil? It would have been counterproductive. It would have totally run against the entire theme of the rebellion. The whole purpose of the rebellion was to show we don't want to live that meaningless, technically okay life. We want to live a real Jewish life. So we couldn't celebrate the rebellion for the real Jewish life by using something that was less than ideal. So again, I think this is really just a, a beautiful, beautiful idea. Again, the whole thing is like only like a page and a half in this book, but you see there's really a lot of uh, content uh, here. And again, if, we, if I had I phrase it, the unique evil of the Greeks. So the answer to that question, again, completely different than Haman. We don't really know exactly what Parah's motivation was, but clearly it was also somewhat selfish. He had this slave, you know, and it was good for his economy. He had free labor. He might have also hated us. I'm just saying, but that's the, 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 the Pesach story is not the same as the Purim story. And the Purim story is not the same as the Hanukkah story. We, we can't be lazy and assume that all the, the, the enemies are the same. Not only because it's not precise, because if we don't appreciate the uniqueness of the enemy, and what they were trying to do, we also don't appreciate what Hashem did for us, and what we should be thankful for, and how we should commemorate it. So this is the second point to keep in mind for this Hanukkah, which is that we are not just commemorating um, the victory, 
But we're also commemorating what the unique evil that the Greeks had, and that they were trying to take away the tam, the, the beauty, the taste of Judaism away. Do whatever you want, but it's going to be meaningless. It won't have any real value. And that is something that we cannot accept. And of course, the particularly um, striking, uh, really and almost uh, you know, really powerful for those of us in Israel uh, to read this piece and think about our life here, not just because of the war, but just in general, is Rav Asher's insight that there could be gullus even in Israel. I don't want to get into the whole discussion now, nor do I know if I have a definitive answer. But this is like a huge question in general, like in the whole Zionism versus non-Zionism approach, right? Are we still in Gullus now? Is this Gullus? Yes. Right. I was asking rhetorically. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, it's not a simple question. I have very good friends. Rabbi Tamid Chachamim. Say, no, how can you say it's Gullus? We have our own state in Israel, millions of Jews. It may not be the base of Migdash. No one, no one who's religious thinks we have everything we want. Of course we want more. But how can you call this still Gullus? Other people say, of course it's Gullus, we don't have a base of Mikdash. And I've heard other great Rabbanim say, we're not in Gullus or Geula, we're somewhere in between. I'm not interested in discussing that now, that's not our topic today. We'll come back for Yomatsamud or something to discuss that. But, but this piece is now relevant, this is a relevant piece. This is a very interesting insight. And you, you, this is not about anti-Zionism, I'm saying this, Rav Asher was saying, if you can't live a fully Jewish life in Israel, which we can now, we can and that's partially, I mean, that's among many other things what we're fighting for, so we can continue Before to do so. it's not Gullus. The Geula isn't here yet. It's okay, so you, can, okay, so you have a strong opinion about uh, everything, <laughs> including this. Including this. <laughs> but, not every, but, not, but not everyone agrees to that. Again, I, don't, I, don't, I threw that in at the end. I didn't want to digress because I want to get to one last point. But I'm just saying, Rav Usher Weiss's point about the Hanukkah story, which I think is powerful, and again, I think he is Meduyuk, it's Chazal. So none of us can argue on Chazal. You can argue on Rav Usher Weiss, maybe. You can't argue on Chazal. Chazal say Golus Yavon. And he makes the incontrovertible point that we were in Israel when the story happens. How can you call it Golus? And you see from this, however you want to fit this into your overall worldview is not the topic now. But it says you see from this incontrovertibly there can be a concept of Golus even in Israel. Again, I'm not saying, thank God we don't live in a situation like the Greeks. But if we would... That would be called Gullus, and that's just something to appreciate. Again, it's not just the land and the, the dirt and the geography and where we are. It's what we can, it's the Jewish life we can have here that is real, really what we're striving for. Okay, last but not least, uh, we have about 10, 11 minutes left. I hope I can do it justice. I didn't have time. I literally ran out of time because of the printer issues. Um, I couldn't put uh, all the sources that I wanted, and we would probably have enough time to do it all anyway inside. But this, Number three, history and thanksgiving. Uh, I wanted to share with you an idea from Rav Salvechik, which comes from this book, uh, Days of Deliverance, which was uh, published way after Rav Salvechik died, but they took literally tapes and notes of lectures that he had given, and they edited it into a very beautiful sefer. This one is on both Purim and Hanukkah. And on one of the essays on Hanukkah, uh, he makes the following points using uh, the sources in the Rambam that I included uh, here on your sheet. So the Rambam there says, and this is right in the beginning of Hilchas Hanukkah, this is the first thing the Rambam says, he reviews the history of the story. We mentioned that the Gemara gives a little bit of a history, but that's a very brief history. Right? The Rambam gives a little bit more detail based on other sources. And the Rambam says, but by Yesheni, it took place in the time of the Beis HaMikdash, the second Beis HaMikdash, Shemochu Yovan, Gozru Gzeros Al Yisrael, they did these terrible persecution and uh, decrees against the Jewish people, Ubitlu Datam, they didn't let them really practiced the religion, they didn't let them learn Torah, they let them do mitzvos, and they stole our money, and unfortunately they stole our daughters, and of course they went to the base of Mikdash, and they did also the damage in the base of Mikdash, they contaminated the, the things that should be kadosh, as we just talked about, but it was very, very terrible, and they were really 
gave us uh, a lot of problems. It was very, very terrible. Until Rechim Aleim Elkeavotenu, Kodesh Baruch had compassion on us, and he saved us. Miyodam Haitzilam, he's the Gavru Bnei Chashmanai, and the Chashmanai family and those who they led were able to rebel, the Kohanim Gedolim, etc., etc., and they saved them, us from them. Himidum El Chakwanim, then they were able to retake sovereignty. The Ram emphasizes this. Um, very much that part of the essence of what we're thankful for on Hanukkah is not just that we had the religious freedom, but that instead of it being under the thumb of the rule of the Greeks, now all of a sudden it restored Jewish sovereignty to the land of Israel. Yisrael, Yisrael there was 200 years plus, 200 more years until, uh, including Purim, and then eventually the destruction of the, uh, excuse me, before Purim, uh, and, then, and then the second base of Megdash. Okay, that's the Rambam begins all of the laws of Hanukkah. And then he'll get into all the things about how you light the candles, why you light the candles, what kind of oil, and what if you're at your brother's house in, in Modiin for a Hanukkah party, what do I light then? And what if I want to go to the uh, Simcha Liner concert, and I have this, and my parents are making a party there, and all the, if I'm going away for Shabbos, where do I light? And if I'm slept over for Shabbos there, but I'm going back once to Shabbos, do I light? All that stuff the Ramam gets to. He doesn't talk about donuts, as far as I know. Maybe in, you know, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls there's some reference to donuts, I would assume. Uh, very important mitzvah. But not in the Rambam. Okay. Asks Rav Salvechik, or again, he observes, but he observes that there's something peculiar here. This is the only time the Rambam ever did this. He begins the halachos of a certain holiday with a history lesson. If you open up the Rambam and the laws of Pesach, he doesn't start off by telling you the whole Pesach story. Even Purim he didn't do. Only Hanukkah. Now, again, the technical reason which I already alluded to when I told you about the Gemara, is because the Hanukkah story happens after the after the Tanakh. So there is no written record. And he makes exactly this point. When the events occurred, the canon was closed. Prophecy was a thing of the past. The story of Hanukkah is told by the Torah Shabal Peh. It's the oral Torah. Therefore the Rambam repeated it, because the whole book of the Rambam is really supposed to be his summary of the oral Torah. Fine. But now Rav makes the point which is really the relevant one. And I've, I've already kind of alluded to this point more than once already. And it probably was in my mind subconsciously because I knew we were going to get to this piece. And this is really the theme of Soloveitchik's piece of what we're, uh, the connection between history and gratitude or what I call history and thanksgiving. Why did the Ramam emphasize the history? Why was that so important? And he makes the point very simply. Knowledge of the events is indispensable halakhically for the perfect fulfillment of the mitzvahs of Hanukkah. You cannot experience Hanukkah in the way you're supposed to if you don't understand the history behind Hanukkah. As the Rambam says in the next piece below, the whole purpose of Hanukkah is not just a technical perfunctory command to commemorate what happened in the days of therefore you will light a candle, you will light oil, etc. Rather, it is supposed to be, if you look at the end of that uh, passage there, the purpose, says of of Hanukkah is not just to light the candles, but it's halal and hoda, it's to praise and to thank God for everything that he did. And he here employs some somewhat uh, consistent and common uh, t- technique that he uses, and we've discussed this in previous shurim, that sometimes you have a difference between what's called the ma'asa ha-mitzvah and the kiyam ha-mitzvah. Sometimes the action that you do, you shake a luluf. That's the action you did, you shook a luluf. But what's the purpose? The aha, or the cha-ching, where you get that check up in Shemayim. What's that? So with Lulav, this is, I took a Lulav. That's it. That's what I did. That's the cha-ching. Simultaneous. It's one thing. Rav Slavichik pointed out that there are many other examples 
in which you can separate the two. You can, you can bifurcate. There is a ma'asa ha'mitzvah, there's something you have to do. But the aha, that cha-ching, you get that checkup in Shamayim, that's something else. So Sarah Salvecha Hanukkah is an example where they're not the same thing. The ma'asa ha'mitzvah is lighting the candles. I don't want to get into the detail. Is it lighting the candles or having candles lit or someone lit for you? But lighting candles, let's be simple about it. It doesn't want to be overly complicated. But what's the aha? What's the point of it all? It's not just lighting the candles. The Kiyom Mitzvah Seder Salvechik expresses itself in the experience of gratitude, which manifests itself in a physical act. If we are indeed to experience gratitude, it is necessary to know for what we are grateful and for what we extol the Almighty. Therefore, knowledge of the story is essential. Seder Salvechik, you have to understand, there is a higher purpose than just the candles being lit. It's that the candles being lit are a way of inspiring us, a catalyst to thank and praise Hashem. But the essence of the mitzvah, the kiyum, the cha-ching of the mitzvah, is the gratitude, is the halva hodah. And as I've already mentioned before, and Rav Salvechik says it better than I ever could, you can't have gratitude if you don't know what you're being grateful for. This is, by the way, if I can digress for 30 seconds of... Uh, political commentary, this is why America and probably most of Western civilization is such a mess. Because no one studies history. Nobody knows history. So how come so many young people in America hate America? How come the the support for Israel is super high in America? Liberal, Democrat, Republican, conservative, above a certain age. The younger you get, we're in big trouble. The youth of America are... Think about it. some of them are anti-Semitic. The main thing is they don't love their own country. Why should they love our country? Why do they, and why do they love America? Well, would they want to live somewhere else with all the weird things that they're doing? Most of the world would kill them for what they want to do and how they want to live their life. The answer is no one knows any history. If you don't know history, how can you love something you don't understand, you don't appreciate? Yeah, politics is over. <laughs> but says the Rambam, says, says the Rav, this is exactly what the whole purpose of Hanukkah is. How could you? I thank you, Hashem, for the holiday of Hanukkah. And what exactly happened? Uh, 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 uh. It, it's meaningless. I think I mentioned maybe in a different share. Again, we're all guilty of this sometimes. I know this. I, I every now and then I catch myself and just have to hope the other person on the other line doesn't know. I'll be someone will call me or I'll call, and I'll say thank God, Baruch Hashem. But they didn't ask me how I'm doing. <laughs> I'm just so used to that being like the second thing you say. So sometimes we say things without thinking, but we're not proud of it, and we hope we don't get caught. Right, and we sort of want our Hanukkah to be that way. If you don't know what you're thankful for, so what? Say, I lit the candles, shkayach, and why light the candles? To thank God. And what do you thank God for? Uh, something. So the answer is no. The history of the Hanukkah story is indispensable because the essence of the mitzvah is the thanks, is the thankfulness, the gratitude. And you can't be thankful without a story. He points out in that second source you have on the bottom of the page here. There's something unique about Hanukkah as well. It's the only time the Rambam refers to a mitzvah. Mitzvah chaviva hi ad ma'od. It's a very beloved mitzvah. Now I assume the Rambam loved all mitzvahs. Right? Well, I hopefully love the mitzvahs. When I meet with a boy or a girl from the shul, a bar about mitzvah, one of the questions I sometimes ask them is like, what's your favorite mitzvah? And sometimes if, you know, not every kid is so talkative, especially in front of the rabbi, uh, but sometimes they are. And then if I feel like, you know, they're a kid who can handle the question, I'll sometimes say, what's your hardest mitzvah? What's the thing you really don't like doing? You have to. What's hard for you? 
Okay, so we're humans. We all have mitzvahs we love more. We have love less. But we, I wouldn't write it in the book, one mitzvah I love. And I certainly not if I was the Rambam. But, why, but yet he calls Hanukkah, the mitzvah is Chaviva Admaod. <laughs> Could be. That's a riot. They had donuts in the time of the Ramam. Fair enough. Could be. So it says of Salvechik something beautiful. Again, he says this is part of the idea. Because the whole relationship, there's no love without thanks, without appreciation, without a karsatov. And that all comes from the candles if we understand them properly. It's the key uh, to everything. And I'll just end by, again, I, there's really more to read inside, but we're running out of time. But I'll just read the following, which is that he explains that even though both Hanukkah and Purim have an idea of Pirsum Hanes, of publicizing the miracle, yet there's a difference. He says when it comes to, ha- to Purim, because we have Megillus Esther, there's an objective, codified way to be Mepharsim, to publicize the miracle. There's a text. We all have to read that text. And that is a form of publicizing the miracle. However, he says when it comes to Hanukkah, the candles are publicized. But in essence, what he says again in, in his beautiful English, the candles are telling a story. But the story that the candles tell is not the same story no matter who lights the candles. The story will be different depending on who's telling the story. As you know, whether it's a rabbi or a teacher or a speaker, some people could tell, two people could tell the same story, one person with vivid detail and a lot of rich examples and very dynamic, and other person, sometimes you prefer the other one, shorter, you know, I gotta go, what do you, let's, and sometimes, but the point is, there's different ways to tell the same story. Purim, there's one way. Purim, there's a, there's a text, it's called the Megillah. Hanukkah is also a Pursumenes, but there's no text. We write the story each time when we light the candles. But what story we will be telling in how much detail? Did we forget the main point? Did we forget the details? We, get... we have to know the story. We have to know the history. That's why the history is so important. Because you can't be grateful and you can't tell a story with gratitude unless you know the details. And he says, that's why it's Chaviva Ad There's something unique about Hanukkah. It's rare. It says, it's somewhat similar, he says, to the Pesach story where we have four different children and we have to tell the story of each one on their level. So similarly here as well, but we decide the level we're on. The more we invest before Hanukkah, the more we understand the story, the more shurim we go to, the more things we read, the more we understand, then the more grateful we are, the more detailed, rich, and vivid our story is for ourselves, for our children, and for the community. And if we barely know anything, and we don't invest anything, we just say, okay, I always, I always knew the story. It's the same story. Then that's, then that's all you'll be telling. Will you get technically a check because you lit the candles? Yes, maybe but you'll be missing the beauty, you'll be missing the hitter, you'll be missing the Tom. Very good. Okay.